I want you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We return to the book of Romans, and we do indeed believe that this is a rich, rich time in the study of God's Word as we return after several weeks away from Paul's letter to the Romans. And I want you to turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, all the way through chapter 10, verse 21, which ends that chapter. Beginning in Romans 9:30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." But how are they to call on Him him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Even though we have covered Romans 9.30, through chapter 10, verse 13, I wanted to read it all so that we might understand the context of our message today on Romans 10, verses 14 to 21, entitled, Believing and Obeying the Gospel. Part of my reason for reading that entire section is because of 
How many people wrongly understand Romans 10 verses 14 and 15? You remember I read it to you, but how are they to call on Him in whom they've not heard? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? It's become so familiar for missions conferences to select Romans 10 verses 14 to 15 as a text to use in order to motivate men and women to give their lives to missions. And while it is, of course, not wrong to attempt to motivate men for missions, not at all, absolutely not, I'm not sure that using Romans 10, 14, and 15 is the best place in the Bible to do this. Why do I say that? Well, listen to Douglas Moo, one of the more able commentators on the book of Romans, as he addresses this very issue. This is what he says. Before I studied or taught Romans, I'd often heard Romans 10, 14, and 15 quoted in missionary sermons to prove the need to, quote, send out, unquote, missionaries. Like many who listened to such sermons, I did not have a good sense of the context from which the verses were taken. When I studied the context, I realized that the usual application of the verses was not on target. That text is not encouraging us to send out missionaries. Rather, it is asserting that God has already done so. He has sent out people like Paul and other apostles to preach the good news. Israel has heard that good news but failed to believe it. This is the issue in Romans 10. Dr. Moo is right about that. This surely is the context of Romans 10 and is definitely behind what Paul is driving toward in verses 14 and 15. Paul begins this last section of Romans 10, verses 14 to 21, with a series of rhetorical questions which he is endeavoring to answer himself in the following verses. And he's setting himself up to give those answers in verses 16 to 21 by what he poses in verses 14 and 15. And, of course, in the context of what I read, beginning all the way from Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Do you remember what's going on? Do you remember what is the context beginning in Romans 9, 30? Paul's point is that the Gentile world, during the time of Paul, was not pursuing God's righteousness. Nevertheless, some from among those in the Gentile world attained that righteousness from God because God opened their eyes to believe in Jesus Christ by faith. And because God the Father opened their eyes, gave them the ability to believe Jesus by faith, they were given the very righteousness of God. That is, they had the righteousness of Christ through His death and His burial and His resurrection and His ascension to the Father This righteousness imputed to them by God so that they might be declared just in God's sight. That's why he says what he does in Romans 9.30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, those among the Gentile world who did not pursue righteousness, they were not seeking it. They were serving their pagan gods. They weren't seeking the God of the Bible. They weren't seeking Yahweh God. They were seeking their own religious devotion. And they weren't pursuing God's very righteousness. But Paul says in Romans 9.30, Nevertheless, they've attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. God was gracious to them. Even though they weren't looking for God. God nevertheless visited them, opened their eyes, and they believed in Jesus by faith. This came home to me once again in our recent care group in which one of our members said, I know, as we were talking about Romans 9 and 10, that the doctrine of election is true because I wasn't pursuing Christ at all. I was pursuing my own course. 
I was following my own God, namely myself and my own pursuits and my own desires. And Christ came to me by his own initiative and opened my eyes. And I believed in Jesus by faith once I heard the gospel message. And I thought, that's exactly what's going on there in Romans 9.30. Now look at verse 31 of Romans 9. Paul contrasts the righteousness that some of these Gentiles had received by faith with Israel. Who, might you think, would be pursuing the righteousness of God, but they are not. Instead of pursuing Jesus Christ by faith, they pursued the law of Moses, which they supposed would lead them to being declared righteous by God. But Paul says, however, that they did not succeed in reaching that righteousness demanded by the law of Moses. Why? Mainly because no one could be that righteous. No one. No one could seek to become righteous by pursuing the perfection of the law of God by their own merit or their own works. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. Paul has already declared this, and the Jews, the Israelites of Paul's day, they should have known this, because Romans 3.20 says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, the more you attempt to obey God's law, the more you desire to keep it, the more the law exposes your sin. That is precisely why Paul says here in Romans 9.32, because they, Israel, did not pursue it, that is righteousness, by faith, but as if it were based on works. They therefore stumbled over the stumbling stone, Jesus Christ. So that when Jesus came onto the scene in His earthly ministry and He preached righteousness and He preached that He was the fulfillment of the law, the end of the law, the goal of the law, the finish line of the law, the Jews should have received Him. Instead, they rejected Him. And they rejected Him by killing Him. What should have been clear to these Israelites, is that Christ is the fulfillment of God's law. And what they should have done, like these Gentiles were doing, of whom God visited and opened their eyes, you cry out to God in mercy, asking for His grace, because you know you can't fulfill the law of God. You know that it's beyond you. You try and try and try as you might to be a good person, to fulfill the law of God, to do good to your neighbor and to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you realize you cannot. You cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ, and you certainly, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 2, don't do this. Paul says about the Jews of his own day, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. And they didn't see Christ as the end of the law. They saw, frankly, themselves as the completer of the law, right? If you think you can obey God's law... If you think you can seek to be righteous before God by doing your own works, then you see yourself as the end of the law. You see yourself as the fulfillment of doing righteous works. Paul says, no. Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. Look at verse 9 of Romans 10. Here's what they should do. Verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Well, what are you supposed to believe? Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone, Greek and Jew who believes in Him, will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Quoting Joel. 
That's what you have to do. You can't pursue your own works. You can't believe in your own merit, even mixed with the grace of Christ. You can't assume that it's part Christ and part you. You can't assume that your faith is resting in your ability to believe in God. You cannot assume that you can mix anything other with the cross of Jesus Christ. It is believing alone, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and with your heart believing and therefore you are justified because your mouth confesses that Jesus is Lord. Not just something you say with your mouth, but that you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord because even though He was killed and even though He was in that tomb, He was raised from the dead and He's now ascended to the Father to be the risen Lord, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And that's what you believe. That's what you confess. Not your own works. You don't come into the kingdom of God by seeking to attain your own righteousness. You come into the kingdom by believing and obeying the gospel. That's why this sermon is titled such. Believing and obeying the gospel. You come into the kingdom by calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Not calling upon your own dead works. You can't do that. If you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. You call on your own good deeds, you will not be saved. You will not be delivered from your sins. Someone might object, though, to Paul's words here. And possibly this is the very reason why he writes next in verses 14 to 21 what he does. Someone might say something like this. You mean to say that absolutely everyone, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved? Well, wait a minute. Wasn't... God's plan to have Israel alone as His holy people, a people for His own possession? How is it now that the Jews are rejecting God's plan and some of these Gentiles are embracing it? The the Gentiles, they're a heathen people. They're a godless people. They don't have God's law. They don't love God's law. How can they believe if they haven't even been entrusted with the oracles of God like the Jews have been? It's a fair question. Well, right here in Romans 10, look at verses 11 and 12. Here is where the answer lies. Everyone, everyone... Gentiles included, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction. It's not just the Jews' religion. God has opened the door wide for everyone, all peoples of the world, who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now this, I assume, and maybe you assume, would be a great place to end this chapter. Right? I mean, just that... That declaration from Joel's prophecy that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Period. Next chapter. But we have a problem. And that problem is that Paul actually, in verses 14 to 21, is indicting both Gentiles and especially Jews for not believing and obeying the gospel. Oh yes, there are some Gentiles and it is marvelous that they have believed and obeyed the gospel. But there are so many more Gentiles who must do so and there are the whole of the Jews who must do so. That's what verses 14 to 21 is all about. In other words, out of the everyone of verses 11 and 13, there are those Gentiles and Jews who still do not believe and obey the gospel, especially the Jews who have been entrusted with so much more. Oracles of God, all of the things that he says there in Romans 9, 3 to 5, they... They have been entrusted with the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and even from their own race has come Jesus Christ. Oh, so much more they've received. 
but also these Gentiles, the ones who are still rejecting. And what I see here in verses 14 to 21 are three very clear outline points. Number one, the anticipated questions about the preaching of the gospel. Number one, the anticipated questions about the preaching of the gospel, verses 14 and 15. Secondly, the apostolic pronouncement about the preaching of the gospel, verses 16 to 18. The apostolic pronouncement about the preaching of the gospel, verses 16 to 18. And then thirdly and finally, the affirmed response about the preaching of the gospel. The affirmed response about the preaching of the gospel, verses 19 to 21. Now this is fascinating. Follow closely with me here. Let's look at that first outline point. The anticipated questions about the preaching of the gospel. I've already quoted these verses, verses 14 and 15. And as I've said, if you're not careful, you take this out of its context, you're going to be looking at these verses and say, oh, I see, verses 14 and 15 are in essence a logical order from Paul about the whole process of preaching the gospel. From the time someone is ordained and sent all the way through to those who are called who believe. And it is true, that's in there. But don't miss the context. Paul isn't intending to give a systematic understanding of the order of gospel preaching in verses 14 and 15. It is logical, and it is ordered, and it is true, and I'm sure so much of what is said about these verses in the context of sending out missionaries is also true, but they're using the right doctrines from the wrong text. This is, this is talking about Those who have already heard the gospel, those who have already seen the gospel sent out to them and who have disobeyed it. Yes, it is true that there is a logical order here. For instance, verse 14, to be saved from sin, sinners must call upon the name of the Lord. That's what Paul has just articulated. But in order to call upon the name of the Lord, they must call someone in whom they believe. But in order to believe in that someone, they must have heard of that someone. Yes, that's true. And in order to hear of that someone in whom they are to believe, it must be preached to them. Yes, very true. But in order to have a preacher who then preaches about this someone in whom they must believe, that preacher himself must be sent to do do that preaching. And the one who does take that very message, who is sent, who preaches it, has those beautiful feet because he announces the good news of the gospel. All of that is true and all of that is crucial and it is necessary. They proclaim the gospel of the good news of salvation in Christ. They are being sent out by those who commissioned them to preach and they preach to those who have never heard so that they might believe in Him whom they have now heard and that they might call upon Him so as to be saved. The fact is, in the context in which Paul is citing this very logical order for gospel preaching, all gospel preaching to occur, he isn't saying these things to the Roman church so that they might be motivated to send out missionaries from their body. Although it is certainly true that he wants them to do that. Paul himself has said in the latter part of this book, I desire to go to Spain so that I might there preach the gospel. But the fact is, Paul is setting up a series of anticipated questions to indict those who've already heard the gospel. That's the point. The preaching of the gospel message in this context has already occurred. It's already happened. His point is that the Gentile world, and especially the Israelites, have already been commanded to call upon the name of the Lord. This isn't an invitation to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the demand that they do so. This is the summons that has already occurred. The gospel by Paul and the apostles has already gone out. Yes, it is true that Paul says in Romans 9, 30-33, that the Gentiles, meaning some within the Gentile world, have believed in Jesus by faith. But there are so many others who have rejected that message. So many other Gentiles. And he is posing these questions 
for others within the Gentile world who have rejected the good news and who continue to worship their pagan gods. And likewise, Paul is also indicting the Jews, especially the Jews, as we'll see later here in Romans 10, who have stumbled over the stone that is Christ because they too have failed to believe in Jesus as their Messiah. And this particular group of people, the Jews, were so privileged, as I said, to hear from God the Father Himself who led them out of Egypt and who gave Him His law, who gave them His law on Mount Sinai. They've now come to see the very fulfillment of the law by the person of Jesus Christ Himself who did miracle after miracle after miracle so that they could obviously see that He is the Messiah. He is the one in whom we must entrust our souls. This is the appointed one who is to come. He is here. We must believe in Him. We must reject all other things, including our own works. The gospel's already gone to them. It's not a set of verses on sending missionaries. It's declaring that they already have been sent. And the Jews have rejected Christ almost summarily. Just a few, just a remnant. And while there has been a wonderful influx of Gentiles, maybe even those that dominated the church in Rome, the very people that Paul is preaching to here, writing to here, but so many more of them need to hear, so many more of them need to receive and not reject. I mean, he does ask the question, how are they to call on Him whom they have not believed. Who's the they in verse 14? Well, anybody who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and believes in their heart that God has raised Him from the dead, that's that's the they. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on Him? Paul gives the answer, very strong answer. Look at the second outline point, the apostolic pronouncement about preaching the gospel. Look at verse 16. But they have, notice the they, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. See, Paul is not satisfied with those who have already responded to the gospel, whether they be Jews or Gentiles. He's not not satisfied with that. He wants more and more and more people to respond in this context, verse 16, to obey the gospel. Do you realize that? The gospel is not just to be believed. The gospel is to be obeyed. It's a summons. It's a command to be obeyed. And he clearly says here in verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Who's the all? The rest of the Gentiles and especially the rest of the Jews. The vast majority of them. They've not obeyed this gospel. All these rhetorical questions receive this kind of answer. Have they done this? Yes. Has this occurred? Yes. Will they be sent by whom? Yes. And once they've been sent, what will be the result? They've not all obeyed the gospel. They should. They must. But they haven't done so. Theologians call this the general call of God to salvation. General offer. Here it is. It's a great text for this. This is the general gospel call. It's like Jesus' own words. Many are called, few are chosen. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in this logical priority of the preaching of the gospel, you have to be sent if you're a preacher. And if you're sent by a preacher and you go preach Jesus Christ, they are commanded to believe And how do they believe? They call on the name of the Lord so as to be saved. But here's the problem. The missionaries have been sent. The apostolic band has made their pronouncement. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. You see what Paul is doing here? He's not describing through these rhetorical questions the systematic order for how to send missionaries as fundamental as that is for reaching the unreached. He is actually using these rhetorical questions in order to show that mankind has already heard the preaching of the gospel and they have not obeyed it. Look at verse 18. But I ask, he says, have they not heard... 
What's his answer? Indeed they have. Indeed they have heard. You see, that's his answer. That's his answer to the rhetorical questions. Have they heard? You better believe they've heard. Yes, they have. Those to whom Paul is speaking have indeed heard the gospel and rejected the message. Those Gentiles who were not searching for the true gospel heard the message that they cannot earn righteousness by their own good deeds but must believe in Christ. They can't serve false gods and some of those Gentiles believed. But others did not. They rejected the message. They're continuing to serve their false gods. Some of these Gentiles heard the apostolic message of the cross and they believed by faith because a preacher like Paul was sent to them or a preacher like Peter was sent to them. And they believed in that message. And they received Jesus Christ by faith. But some of them did not. Some were delivered from their sins. Some were not. And there were many who heard the same message and disobeyed that gospel summons. They disobeyed. They were not a part of the everyone of verses 11 and 13, but they disobeyed the truth. And, sad to say, the vast majority of Jews, the vast multitude of Jews in Paul's day when hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ also disobeyed the message of Christ. And they went about trying to seek to establish their own righteousness. Just tripping over, stumbling over the very stone which is Christ, who is right in front of them. And Paul doesn't mince words. He mince words. He says it is a lack of submission and disobedience. Notice what he says in chapter 10, verse 3. He says they went about seeking to establish their own righteousness. Notice this, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They wouldn't submit. They were told, they were preached to, there was a proclamation. Paul and the apostolic band preached and preached and preached and you know even preached under the threat of murder. And these Jews just would not submit to God's righteousness. And as he says in verse 16 here in Romans 10, they have not obeyed the gospel. It's an issue of submission and it's an issue of obedience. And this is amazing. Paul, in order to buttress his point here, quotes the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53.1. Notice what he says here in verse 16. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? See, what's significant about that? The significance is, is that Paul is assuming by quoting this very question from Isaiah that there is a declaration that these Gentiles and Israelites from Paul's day had in fact not believed what they had heard. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Implied answer, not these people, not them. They haven't believed what they've heard from us. Paul is, as it were, reaching back to Isaiah the prophet and bringing Isaiah right into the very picture and saying, Lord, who's who's received this message that they've heard from us? Paul says, not those to whom I preach. Not the majority of those to whom I preach. They refused to believe it. Gentiles would continue serving their false gods And the Jews would go about continuing to seek their own righteousness. Is that not a commentary on our own day? Isn't that what Jews and Gentiles are doing today? If you're not all about seeking to establish your own righteousness, and how many times do we hear it, people say, I'm just hoping that when I get to heaven, my good works, what? Outweigh my bad. And there are those people who are serving false gods, either the God of self or other gods. And they're rejecting the obvious message 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that if you confess with your mouth that He is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, this and only this will allow you to be delivered from your sins. And people in our own day, same kind of response. Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? Not the vast majority of people in our world. 6.5 billion people. How many of them are true believers in Jesus Christ? Not just professing believers. Not just those who are the opposite of Muslims called Christians. Those who evangelically truly believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Who have said that Jesus Christ died, was buried, raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, and who will come one day to judge the living and the dead, and whom we believe because we know He's the only Savior given to the world. Could be said, the vast majority of people today, Lord who has believed what He's heard from us, not them. By the way, doesn't that humble you? When you say to yourself, then why me? Then why me? Why has God been so gracious to me? He's, he's opened my eyes, just like a few of these Gentiles in Romans 9.30. I wasn't seeking to, to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. He sought me. He found me. And I received it by faith. And that's why Paul says in verse 17, So faith comes from hearing... And hearing through the word of Christ. That's what true evangelical hearing consists of. Yes, a preacher must be sent. Yes, that preacher preaches the message. And yes, somebody believes. And how is it that they believe? They believe on the name of the Lord and are delivered. And how is it that the name of the Lord comes to them? It is through hearing the word of Christ. The message of Christ. The only saving message in the world. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Think about it this way as its opposite. Does anybody who, who does not believe the word of Christ have faith? No. Because faith comes through hearing the Word of Christ. Anybody who's in some other religion, anybody who is serving some other God could tell you that they truly have faith. They may even demonstrate something that looks to you far beyond what you believe is your own meager faith. But it's not true faith. It's not true believing. Because faith comes from hearing and hearing only through the Word of Christ. Paul's saying, forsake all of your false gods, you Gentile worlds. Believe in Christ, and you Jews, don't go about seeking to establish your own righteousness. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That's where faith comes. Forsake all your gods, Forsake your own merited righteousness, which is no merit at all. And notice what he says in verse 18. I ask the question. Have they not all heard this message of Christ? Notice his interesting, provocative answer. Indeed, they have. See, he's answering these rhetorical questions. Has somebody been sent? Yes. What did they preach? Christ. What happens with those who preach Christ? Well, they should believe. And how should they believe? By calling on the name of the Lord. Have people done that? Some have. Most have not. Has this message of Christ, this word of Christ, I ask, Paul says, have they not heard it? Indeed they have. See, this isn't anything other than an indictment. This is an indictment for people who do not believe and obey the gospel. And, and amazingly, Paul quotes from Psalm 19. You say, why is that amazing? Well, you know Psalm 19, the first part of it. The part of which he quotes, that's talking about general revelation. Revelation. 
That's talking about the revelation of God in nature. That's talking about what goes out to the ends of the world, to all the earth, about God's attributes as you see it in nature. But here, of course, he's talking about the gospel of Christ. That's special revelation. That's beyond general revelation. This is the preaching of Christ that we receive from the Word of God. Why would he quote something in reference to general revelation when he's talking specifically about special revelation? I think he does so because he likens the effect. And what is the effect? It's gone out to all the earth. He's not talking about general revelation going out to all the earth. He's talking about Christ's Word The voice of these preachers have gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. You say, well, had the gospel been preached to all the world? Is everybody, like Romans 3 says, stopped as a liar and held accountable to God? Everybody in the entire known inhabited world? Well, I think he's speaking hyperbolically here. I don't think he's talking about every last single individual without exception. I think he's talking hyperbolically here. He's saying that this voice, the voice of gospel preaching, has gone out to all the earth and the words to the end of the world in the sense that there is no one who has an excuse. No one. And Paul's continuing to preach that message, even in Spain, if he can get there. This is is the apostolic proclamation, and it's going on even today, isn't it? This is a continuing idea of the extent of the gospel proclamation. We could even say it like this. Have they not all heard? Have they not heard? Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world as we continue to preach to them also. Most definitely. But you go back to verse 16. They've not all obeyed the gospel. You have missionaries who go. You have people who you evangelize here and they reject you. They disobey the gospel. Yes, that apostolic proclamation that happens through us, even though we're not apostles ourselves, we're ones who are sent with the message, and you send that message to your co-worker, to that person in your school, to that person in your sphere of influence, and God will use your words at times to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. That person that I mentioned who had said, I wasn't seeking Christ, Christ sought me was through the gospel witness of my wife and I as we proclaim the truth. And while that one person responded and it was a glorious thing, there's so many others who reject, who disobey. And what about the Jews? I mean, now Paul really zeroes in on the Jews especially on them. Look at that third outline point, the affirmed response, maybe even the plan and response about the preaching of the gospel. Look at verse 19. But I ask, and here's another question, did Israel not understand? And now he narrows the indictment down to the Jews themselves. Did Israel not understand? In other words, is this just an issue of the Jews themselves not quite understanding these things? I mean, what was the plan? How should they have responded? Is this new to them? Do they not get it? Do they not understand it? Paul says, not on your life. Verse 19, first, first as in Moses, second as in Isaiah. First, Moses says, I will make you, that's Israel, jealous of those who are not a nation, that's the Gentiles, with a foolish nation, that's the Gentiles, I will make you you angry, quoting from Deuteronomy 32.21. First he says, look, if you want to know if the Jews are surprised by this plan, which also includes the Gentiles, they should not be surprised at all. Because all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses says about God, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And God's marvelous plan. He takes Gentile, pagan, irreligious, carnal people and he brings some of them into the fold and that's intended for the Jews to be responded with something like this. How is this so? 
Aren't we the favored nation? Isn't God visiting us? Didn't He give us the law? Haven't we been granted the glory and the adoption and the patriarchs? What is God doing? You remember even Habakkuk asking the question, God, what are you doing judging us by that wicked nation? What's what's the meaning of this? Here's the answer. I'm making you jealous. I'm, I'm making you angry. For those who are not a nation. Remember he earlier said, for those who are not a people. Now he says, those who are not a nation. This is amazing. In the plan of God, it was the plan of God all along to provoke the Jews to jealousy by calling the Gentiles to himself. And he says, I'll take a people who were not a nation, a foolish nation, a pagan nation, and I'll save some of them so that Israel will be jealous and they will then be constrained to follow the Lord. Maybe something like this. Well, we better get our act together. Because look, God's he's saving them. He's, he's calling them to himself. And then, amazingly, verse 20, then Isaiah, the second prophet he quotes here from Isaiah 65.1, he's so bold as to say, this is God speaking, I have been found by those who did not seek me, that's the Gentiles, I have shown myself, I've manifested myself, I've revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. That is bold. God says, I have a plan. And part of that plan is to reveal myself to people who weren't even looking for me. And you and I can say amen to that. We're of that Gentile stock. We've been found. And we weren't even looking for Him. We weren't even seeking Him. And God in His mercy says, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Everybody in this room, if you know Jesus Christ, you weren't asking for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ revealed Himself to you. He opened your eyes, just like those disciples on the Emmaus Road of Luke 24. Did our, not, did our hearts not burn within us as He opened the Scriptures? Yes. It's a terrible indictment of the Jews. Paul says these preachers, they've gone out, they've been commissioned, they've been sent, and they preached, and they preached all day long, and they preached repentance, and they preached faith in Jesus Christ, and you stumbled over Christ. And the Gentiles are going to come in as a provocation so that you would be angered enough to get right with God. And in the mercy of God, He's found those who don't even seek Him and He's revealed Himself to those who aren't even asking for Him. And then, I'm telling you, mercy of all mercies, even with that obstinate and contrary and disobedient people, the Jews, God nevertheless says, verse 21, but of Israel He says, all day long I have held out my hands. He's even doing that today. To every Jewish person today, God says, I hold out my hands. Receive me. Love me. Serve me. Believe in my Son, Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and cast yourselves upon the mercy of my Son who will give you His righteousness all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask you today as we close, whether you're a Jewish person or Gentile, doesn't matter. He's holding out His hands for you. What do you say? What's your response? To acknowledge, yes, Lord, I am disobedient and contrary. I've either gone about to seek my own righteousness or I've just followed my own gods, namely myself or literally some other false god that is purported to be the true god of the universe and I recognize it as sin. And I hold out 
my wicked, sinful life. And I ask you in mercy and grace, would you extend to me your hands? I know it's been long. I know it's been all day, Lord. But I would not reject you now. Thank you for opening my eyes and for giving me the Lord Jesus Christ. I call on His name and I know if I do so, I'll be saved. Do you want to be saved? Young person, don't assume for one moment that you can continue worshiping in this church, which is a hollow worship if you don't know Christ. Church member, maybe some of you who have been members for long periods of time, this church or another, this gospel has been preached, it has been commissioned, I have preached it to you, and you must respond, you must repent, you must submit, not to your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. Visitor, if you're here and you have never heard this message, or if you have heard this message time and time and time again, and you are those to whom it was said, who has believed what he's heard from us? And the answer to you is, I've rejected it time and time again. Don't reject it today. Don't reject it today. Believe on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are those disobedient and contrary people who have received mercy because you have visited us, opened our eyes. You've shown us the person of Christ. How could we thank you enough? How could we thank you enough? Lord, we are so unworthy. And you have granted us grace and mercy. And we thank you for the gospel. We do not disobey it. We believe it. Lord, I pray for those who are here who are in a present state of disobedience, who have not submitted to the righteousness of God. I pray that you'd touch their life. It can only come if you open their eyes. Open blind eyes, Lord. Open deaf ears. Cause the truth of this gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to penetrate the hardest heart. Thank you that this preached word has gone out even today. May we all, as we leave this place, embrace this gospel and forever after live in light of it. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.